Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone welcome back to another episode of talking tutors i'm your host natalie gruniger thank you so much for joining me today as always i would like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the generous listeners who continue to support talking tutors on patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors patron family. Please visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors patron family to instantly unlock access to exclusive posts, including audio releases and videos. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly live talks and to enter patron-only monthly giveaways. August's prize is a gift pack from the recent exhibition, The Tudors, Art and Majesty and Renaissance England, kindly sponsored by Dr. Valerie Schutte. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. Now, on to today's episode, I'm thrilled that Leia Redmond Chang is joining me on the podcast to chat about her new book, Young Queens, Three Renaissance Women and the Price of Power. Leia Redmond Chang is a former associate professor of French literature and culture at the George Washington University. Her writing draws on her extensive experience as a researcher in the archives and in rare book libraries. Her previous books include Into Print, The Invention of Female Authorship in Early Modern France, which focused on women and book culture in the 16th century, and with Catherine Kong, Portraits of the Queen Mother, about the many public faces of Catherine de' Medici. She lives with her husband and three children and divides her time between Washington, D.C. and London. Let's dive straight into our conversation. Welcome to Talking Tudors, Leia. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you so much for having me on. Yes, I've been so looking forward to talking to you after listening to your fantastic book. Loved every second of it. So it's so, so lovely to be here with you. I'm really excited for this conversation. Now, Leah, I think we should start with you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and your background. Sure. Um, well, I'm Leah Redmond Chang, and uh, I wrote a book called Young Queens, Three Renaissance Women and the Price of Power. And I come to history uh, through a kind of uh, winding path. Uh, I was always interested in history and for many years thought about going to uh, history for graduate school, to history programs, but instead I ended up in literature. 
uh, partially because I thought that in literature, I'd be able to do both <laughs> history and literature together, which was both true and not true. But I never really forgot my my love of history. And in many ways, even as I was studying literature, I was always trying to, to talk about the past in a kind of multidimensional way. And so I was, a, I was a professor for many years, but now I'm writing full time. And this book really, in some ways, kind of marries my love of both history and literature. Wonderful. And and so the book is actually about three incredible women. So Catherine de' Medici, Mary Queen of Scots, and Catherine's daughter, Elizabeth de Valois. So why did you decide to write about these three women in particular? Well, I had done a project on Catherine de' Medici involving a lot of sort of deep thinking about Catherine and why she has the reputation that she has and how she got there. And uh, in doing that project, I was introduced to Elizabeth. And, and I say introduced because I, I really didn't know much about Elizabeth, even though I had studied the Renaissance for so long. And, and that was really surprising to me. So when I was done with this project, I decided, well, first of all, I didn't have Catherine out of my blood. <laughs> I wanted to do a little bit more about her. But I also really wanted to know more about Elizabeth. And so I went looking for her. And what I found fascinated me because she was so young and because she has sort of fallen out of cultural memory. And the fact that she's she's sort of forgotten was itself interesting to me. And then as I was researching Catherine and Elizabeth, I realized by looking at some of the documents from the 16th century, just how important Mary Queen of Scots was to their lives. And the fact that they were all together for many years at the French court. So they were, they're kind of a family unit. Catherine is French queen consort. Elizabeth de Valois is her daughter and Mary Queen of Scots is her daughter-in-law. And also Elizabeth de Valois very close childhood friend. So that was a natural unit. And at the same time, it was sort of incredible that for a very brief period of time, all of them are queens and all of them are living together. <laughs> and then I also realized that one way or another, all of them face very similar challenges that have everything to do with being young and female. So both because chronologically it made sense and thematically it made sense, I decided to tackle all three. And I'm so glad you did. I have to say one of, I think if I have to choose a favorite part of your book, which is very difficult because I loved everything, it was learning more about Elizabeth. Now I've been immersed in this world for a long time as well. And, and I feel like Mary Queen of Scots, yes, and Catherine de' Medici, of course, because of her relationship with Elizabeth is, is quite well known, but I was fascinated to learn about Elizabeth and you've actually inspired me to do a little more digging. So thank you, Leah. That's, that's really <laughs> wonderful. So tell us a little bit about how women in power were viewed during this period. Well, I think it's not a surprise to anybody that they're not viewed particularly well. Um, but I, I do want to say that there are different kinds of power, right, in the 16th century. And so there's a lot of, you know, power behind the scenes that women wield. Certainly, you know, women were often in many ways the, you know, leaders of their families. I'm thinking of the Guises in particular, how important women were to that family. Then you have female regents, of course, who, you know, exerted different degrees of power. So I feel like there's a lot of sort of behind the scenes power that women would wield and that was condoned. But then you have um, inevitably those moments, particularly in the 16th century, when women are very visibly on the throne or very visibly right beside it, <laughs> like Catherine was. And that is not viewed too favorably. It seems to make everybody anxious. 
there's something I've been thinking about this a lot recently. There, there's something, you know, there's like a fine line. A queen consort is so necessary to this dynastic world, right? That is the Renaissance. But as soon as she steps beyond that role of the consort, you know, and becomes the reigning sovereign, it's like the whole system gets shaken up and no one really knows quite what to do. And everyone's just really wishing for that man to come back in and take over. It's so true. I feel like it, they they viewed it as sort of an unnatural thing and anything that they saw as unnatural obviously made them quite nervous and anxious. Um, so going back to Catherine de' Medici, why do you think it is that she has such a bad reputation? I still see people calling her all sorts of things today online. Yeah, it's it's a really good question. And, and I think that it, it starts in the 16th century. And it, it, in, in some ways, it's a hard question to answer because there are so many hundreds of years separating us from Catherine and, and things have really changed along the way. I think that, you know, first of all, her bad reputation starts in the 16th century because she's an easy scapegoat. She's not born in France, even though she has a French mother. She's born in Italy. Her father's family, these are the Medici, and they're commoners. You know, it doesn't matter how wealthy they are, how powerful they are. They are commoners. And even though Catherine's mother is a French princess, she kind of inherits this uh, commoner status. And when things go wrong, it's very easy for the French to point at that. So, so that's one reason. And, and also she, she reigns at a time that is so polarized, right? That she, she has enemies. And just like the times we live in now, it's always the extremes that have the loudest voices. And so the people who hated Catherine were very, very loud, even though there were many people who loved Catherine in the 16th century too. And then, you know, there, I do think that there is something about hating women, that resonates across time periods and becomes very easy to build narratives off of. So lots of 17th century propaganda or even propaganda in England in the late you know, 16th century under Elizabeth Tudor, and then even in, into the 17th century in multiple countries, start to use this narrative of the evil Italian queen because it's easy and it, it kind of resonates with people. And I think that we're still kind of fascinated with this idea of the evil Machiavellian woman. And so even though so many scholars have actually tried to work to undo this narrative of Catherine and, and show a far more complex, interesting leader, it's kind of an easier soundbite to talk about the evil Italian queen. And so it endures. Yeah, and it makes good television, obviously, because that's what we've yes. seen in television, haven't we? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Reputation at this point was everything, wasn't it? For It was a woman's protection, especially a woman in power like, like Catherine. So she becomes very vulnerable once people start attacking that. So it, I'm so glad that you've done so much to rehabilitate her in your book as well. But I, I'd love to know a little bit more about the woman that you actually discovered during your research, you know, researching and writing about a person you become quite close to them, don't you? So what did you think of her? Oh, so I am a fan of Catherine. I, I will say that I, I really am. Elizabeth de Valois in many ways was the inspiration for this book because I, I really wanted to bring her forward. But I also wanted to work against this terrible reputation, this kind of flattened reputation that Catherine has. I did want to show a much more complex person. And, and you really do see that in reading her letters, partially because I started with her as a child 
to the extent that I can. You know, I, I tried to go back, at, you know, as young as I could with each one, each of these women. And Catherine had such a terrible childhood in many ways, such a vulnerable and terrifying childhood. And, it, and it's hard not to sympathize with the child who is a political pawn from, the, well, really from the time she's born, but certainly from the time she's about eight years old. And she's an orphan and she has very little obvious family support. And when I try to empathize with that figure, it just became much easier to see where Catherine might be coming from. You know, first as a child and then as a young woman, how that childhood informed her experience as a young woman, how the experience as the young woman informed who she became as a woman and as a queen consort and then a queen mother. I also, you know, really just sat with those letters. I had done this project on Catherine before that involved a lot of translation. And so when you're translating letters, you are really spending a lot of time <laughs> in their heads. And Catherine, she was such a doting mom. And, you know, there's, there's a way in which we can kind of see that as helicopterish and controlling. And I, and I think she, she was in many ways, but we can also see that as coming from a place of, of desire, of, of just really wanting, needing her children in some ways to survive and to thrive. Partially because, as you know, uh, she was barren for 10 years before she has children. So having children is so meaningful for her. And also because she herself had had this tumultuous childhood. So it was probably very important for her to kind of give her children an idyllic childhood. And then because she just, she naturally loved them. She's a, she's a woman who seemed to really love her children um, and be quite involved to the extent that she can in their lives. And, and plus motherhood for anybody at this time is a harrowing experience because children so often fall ill and die. Yeah, there were so many heartbreaking moments um, in her story, really heartbreaking moments. So who were you most drawn to when you were actually writing? I, I'm sort of hearing that you love Catherine, but you were really quite drawn to Elizabeth as well. Is there one that you would say you kind of felt an affinity with more? Okay, so people ask me this question, and I don't know if it's cheating to say, oh, I love all three. <laughs> it does feel like I, you know, I'm giving the easy answer, but but I will stand by that answer and I'll try to explain a little bit. Uh, you know, I did really, really love Catherine, partially because I was allowed to do so. I mean, she has so many letters, so many more than Elizabeth de Valois, for instance, and, and even Mary Queen of Scots, right? So many letters. She was so prolific. So I really could just be in her head a lot more. So in that way, it was sort of easier to empathize. But with all three, you know, I was trying to capture a kind of psychological portrait. And so I, I did come to relate to all of them in different ways. So with Elizabeth, you know, I think Elizabeth really drove home to me just how young all of these girls were when they were expected to you know, leave home and then take on these sort of politically significant roles. Um, and, and just as sort of this young girl who kind of represents the experience of so many young girls, whether they are royal or aristocratic, I, I really felt, you know, Elizabeth that way. And, and then she just, she just wants so badly to please her mom. <laughs> I think I think that we can all relate to that in some ways. You know, you see this very human kind of mother-daughter relationship develop between the two of them. So I really felt like I was lucky to to see that through Elizabeth. And then with Mary Queen of Scots, something else happened. 
so Mary is so, so everywhere, right? Like we all know her story. Most of us have been reading about her since we were young children ourselves. You know, we think we know her and that's the thing, right? We think we know her. And then when I had to get in, into those letters and then, and sort of recontextualize Mary, you know, in France, in relation to her little childhood friend, Elizabeth, or her mother-in-law who used to like her and then comes to not like her, I started to see a different side of Mary, a, a Mary who was who was kind of lost and, and a Mary who just wants to be where she was in childhood again. You know, I feel like maybe, I don't know if everyone can identify with that, but there are those times in your life where, you know, you're kind of undergoing a transition or something has really changed or you're growing into adulthood and you have to assume these roles that, you know, just aren't comfortable anymore. And you, you kind of get nostalgic about your childhood, right? And how easy it used to be. You, you see it through rose-colored glasses. Yeah. And I felt like I saw a lot of that in Mary, the sort of idealizing of her childhood in France and just wanting to get back there again. And I just, I felt so bad for her. And I hadn't, I hadn't really seen that in Mary before working on this book. Let's stay with Mary, Queen of Scots for the moment. What do you think of one, is one of the most pervasive misconceptions about her? She's also one that hasn't done very well in terms of reputation throughout the centuries. So what's something that really stood out to you? That is a great question. You know, I'm going to answer it. And then probably in like an hour, I will have you know, <laughs> wished I would have answered it differently. So there, there's this excellent biography of Mary, Queen of Scots, which I love by Jenny Wormald, right? Um, and it's, you know, Mary, Queen of Scots, as a failure, the reluctant ruler. And I will say that that really informed my understanding of Mary. But what I would say is, I think that if Mary was a failed ruler or a reluctant ruler, she was almost raised to fail. Something about the way that, you know, the Guises raised her or, or the context in which she was raised in the French court it's almost like this was all stacked against her from the beginning because she's raised to be the superstar, this glittering future queen consort in France. And she does it so well, right? I mean, she is the it girl in France. She thrives in that, in that system. And no one seems to have thought that maybe she was going to need a whole other set of skills if she was going to rule Scotland. And, you know, why is that? That, that is something that I, I can't quite answer fully. Is it, is it because they always thought, and, and by they, I mean the Guises and Mary herself and everybody else, did they always think that she was going to get married and a husband was going to do this for her? I, I think that they really did because that's what all the women did, right? Like Elizabeth Tudor, the shocking thing is that she doesn't get married, right? That's kind of what everyone thinks is going to happen. And I think that Mary is raised to be this wonderful potential wife, right? Because that's her best shot at ruling Scotland well, is being a great wife. And then suddenly she gets back to Scotland. She doesn't have the skill and no one really wants to marry her, at least not the kind of person that she wants to get married to. And in some ways, that was also the fault of the Guises and her childhood because they've raised her to be so arrogant, you know, so confident in her own pedigree that she lacks the ability to kind of realize that she needs to, you know, make a shift. She needs to turn things around and maybe do something a little bit different if she's going to survive. 
she's not able to do that. So to some degree, I think that Mary is often blamed for her bad choices, but I kind of wonder if she never had any choice but to make those bad choices because she was simply following you know, the, the path that had been laid out for her from the time she was a child. Now, that's such a wonderful answer. I, I did a lot of reflecting as well while reading your book about Mary. And, and you know, you often hear this being sort of thrown around that she put her trust in men that basically didn't merit it and all that sort of thing. And I was just thinking about her and Elizabeth, obviously different stories, but there are similarities there as well. And why Elizabeth managed to have such a successful rule supported by so many men, whereas Mary was kind of you know, I don't know, she's not never really taken seriously the sense that that I got. Did you did you sort of think about any of those things while you're writing? Well, yeah, yes. Because to be honest, like Elizabeth Tudor had a much bigger role in the first draft of the book. Right. Okay. <laughs> yes. And then everyone was, you know, sort of fighting for space. And so I eventually had to demote Elizabeth. But well, first of all, Elizabeth Tudor had Mary Tudor. She had five years, right, to kind of think about what worked and what didn't work. And and she was a little bit older, you know, by the time she, you know, takes the crown. And, and the difference, if you think about it in your own life, between 18 and 26 or 25 is, is pretty big. And Elizabeth, like Catherine de' Medici, and I should clarify, Elizabeth Tudor, like Catherine de' Medici, she has had to fight since she was a child, right? She, these are women who are trained from childhood to become survivors, because it would have been very easy to be kind of trammeled for them. Each of their you know, circumstances were quite disadvantageous. Whereas Mary is coddled in her youth. She's not really given the chance to develop a certain form of grit. So I think that she kind of relies on the tools that worked for her as a queen consort, <laughs> right? Like being flirtatious and being beautiful and having fun with her friends. Plus she's 18 when she first gets back to Scotland. She kind of just wants to have fun. And she hasn't really developed a very savvy political mind the way that Elizabeth Tudor is forced to quite young. Yeah, fantastic. Absolutely fantastic points. So in terms of parallels between life for women in the 16th century and now, did you find many of those? Well, yes, on a kind of overarching thematic way. So, you know, obviously I'm American, I live in the States, we are undergoing quite a large discussion of the politicizing of women's bodies these days. And I feel like Young Queens in many ways is all about the politicizing yes. of women's bodies and how women's bodies have been politicized for hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, entire political systems are built around the question of women's fertility or infertility, right? So to some degree, I feel like, you know, it's just that the, the nature of the question has shifted a little, but we're still dealing with the same fundamental idea that on some level, women's bodies are kind of the backbone of our political systems. Yeah. And do you still think that there's a, a, a sense that women in power still make people nervous? Do you still feel that that's kind of... <laughs> yes, now, women, I think that, you know, there's still there's still this effort to kind of categorize them and to to flatten them, to, to sort of, you know, make them seem like these stereotypes, 
You know, why that is, I don't know. Maybe it's because um, it makes people nervous. Maybe it's because it's such an available trope in order to dismiss your political adversary, right? Like you go for the easiest thing. And the easiest thing is that these leaders are women. But, you know, I was thinking, for instance, uh, when Angela Merkel uh, resigned, when she left, um, there was a bit, there was a piece talking about, you know, her very modest lifestyle. And I think she says something to the effect or, or something in the reporting of this piece made me realize how that very modest lifestyle had been cultivated quite expressly by Merkel for years, right? Specifically to avoid, you know, being pounced upon as a female leader. So to some degree, like every ounce of the life, every ounce of the public image does have to be managed in a certain way in order for women in power to avoid these very common and easy stereotypes. So they can just do their jobs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just as the women in the 16th century. Incredible. So um, I want to talk to you a little bit about the, the research process, because I just loved how this book was written, how you wrote this book. Sure. Um, okay. So, so this is where I think, you know, my background as an academic does come in, I think. I mean, I, I was really trained as an academic and that means, you know, sitting with the primary sources always. I use a lot of secondary sources because you have to. And also because secondary sources are so necessary to give you your bearings in the archive, even to know what to look at, but also how to approach these things. And also to kind of give you a sense of how maybe you want to approach things differently. So, but really like sitting with those primary sources is so important and, and looking at every detail. I think my literature background comes in a little bit here. I mean, historians are trained um, this way too, but as a literature scholar, I, I was really trained as a close reader, which means, you know, kind of looking at really small things like the placement of a comma or the choice of a word and, 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 and pulling a lot of meaning, a lot of larger meaning out of these small things. And so I think having that approach helped me think about things like Elizabeth de Valois period, which seems like a very small thing, very specific to this one girl's life, but that actually has such huge political importance, such huge meaning. So sort of making those connections between the very small and the very large was, was quite important to me. And then the other thing is that I, in terms of the writing, is that I love narrative nonfiction. I love creative nonfiction. You see a lot of it, particularly around modern topics. I've always thought that, you know, in the more that we can do of that kind of narrative storytelling for, you know, historically distant topics, the more we will get people interested in this stuff. So, um, so, you know, I wanted to be quite literary about it. I wanted it to be very character driven, you know, really get into the minds of these queens so that we see them as people. And, and that's why it reads the way it does. Yeah, I think you've done that so, so successfully because I, I did feel like I knew all three women by the end and actually really missed them when you, when your book was <laughs> over. So, so thank you for that. I also just have one final question for you before we do the other sort of fun stuff that we've got to do. And that is just what is your sort of ultimate hope for this book when you were writing it? What were you really wanting people to get from it or to learn from it? Well, you know, I didn't use this word in the book, so I'm going to use it now. 
I think what we're looking at is a version of the patriarchy. You know, that's what these women are negotiating. And so I wanted people to come away with an idea of in the 16th century, the patriarchy looks a certain way. And this is how it shapes these women's lives. And these are how women deal with it. This is how they negotiate their way. This is how they survive within this system. And I think I also sort of another big takeaway is to think of these historical figures as people. You know, it's so easy to kind of see them as, I guess, sort of figures in these larger phenomena, whether it be, you know, wars or movements, but not really you know, kind of understand their emotional complexity. And I know for myself, like, that's when I get very, very attached to something historical is when I see when I have an emotional connection. So I hope that readers can make that emotional connection, because they they will feel and they will see the links that we still have to the past, even if we're talking about people and, and events that that occurred 500 years ago. I certainly made that emotional connection and I encourage everyone who is listening to read Young Queens. It is absolutely brilliant. And Leia, are you working on something new at the moment that you can tell us about? Or It's a little bit of a secret, but mostly because I'm still not sure. Okay. <laughs> so I don't want to reveal too much because, you know, anything could change. But, you know, post colon of this book is three Renaissance women and the price of power. And I'm always interested in that relationship between women and power how women wield power, but how also power gets enacted on them. So I think that the next project will have something to do with that as well. Oh, fantastic. I'm excited. I can't wait. We're going to do our little 10 to go now. So these are 10 questions just to get to know you a little bit better. So you've told us that you live in the United States, um, but what's something that you love about your particular area, wherever you are? Well, right now uh, it's summer and in DC, I'm in Washington, DC, and it's hot and the cicadas, you know, these, these insects, they just make this noise. And for many years I lived in the UK and I hadn't realized how much I miss the cicadas. So right now the cicadas are singing. Well, <laughs> and I just love Australia, it. you'll hear them as well. So you you'd oh, be right at well, home. Then I'll love it. I'll love it there too. <laughs> yeah, they are the music of summer, aren't they? That's how yes, I think of yes. them. Definitely. And what about a new skill that you would like to learn? Okay. I think I want to learn to play pickleball. <laughs> I can't oh, believe. What's pickleball? I don't know pickleball. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. It has taken off in the US. You know, it is so popular now that people are even complaining about it because people are playing pickleball at all, all hours of the night and the early morning. It's like a version of, of tennis. And I'm almost embarrassed to say it because it's sort of associated with old people, but now everyone is playing pickleball. And I kind of feel like I'm having pickleball FOMO, right? Like if I don't learn to play, I'll be completely left out. There you go. I have to Google pickleball after this and see what I'm missing out on. So what about the last book that you read or that you're currently reading? Let's see. I just finished a wonderful nonfiction book called Beyond the Shores by Tamara J. Walker about Black Americans who decide to travel abroad and, you know, sort of come to terms with the racial experience. This is particularly in the early 20th century, but actually throughout the 20th um, century, sort of come to terms with the racial experience in the U.S. by their travels abroad. It's excellent. It's wonderful. And what do you like to do to relax and unwind? I bake. (laughs) It's so trite, but I do. I, I I bake bread. I bake focaccia. I bake too many cookies and, and then I eat them. 
<laughs> that sounds perfect. I love it. Do you have any pets? I do. I have a dog. I have a dog named Bonnie. She's an she's an Aussie Labradoodle, and she is smart as a whip. Except for I was just complaining today because she refuses to play fetch. She just will not do it. <laughs> Clever dog. There you go. <laughs> If you enjoy traveling, and I know you've done a bit of traveling lately for your book, what's what's a favorite travel destination, holiday destination for you? Um, well, I always love going back to London. I lived there for several years. When I go back, you know, it, it does still feel like home to me. So I love that. I love that I can travel to another country and, and find a place that feels like home. Um, but the other place that I just went back to recently, but hadn't been to in so many years is Hawaii, which is also very meaningful up to me because my father's from there but I hadn't been in years and when I when I went back again another place that in so many ways feels like home so it was great great to rediscover it again oh I love Hawaii it's absolutely beautiful and what about the last film or series show that you watched um okay well so right now on the advice of an Instagram, you know, correspondent. I started watching watching Lost in Austin. Oh, <laughs> yes. I've heard good things about yes. that. Yes, I've just I've gotten through the first two episodes and it is it is really cute. It is totally absorbing. It's definitely like candy. Um, I mean, if you love Jane Austen and who doesn't really, you know, I, I absolutely love it. It's just so clever. It's really well done. So it's very light, but complete pleasure. Yeah, well, I think you need that after what you've been immersed in a <laughs> little while. So what about, Leia, a favorite season and why? Well, I would always say autumn because that's when my birthday is. Um, but, you know, so I am in Washington, D.C. I grew up in Los Angeles where we don't really have a change of seasons in the same way. And so, you know, when I moved to D.C., that was one of the delights is just the change in seasons. And when we get to the fall, the leaves are changing and then, you know, we can all pull out our wonderful coats and we can curl up with a good cup of tea and a book and make some something delicious and just have all those smells. So in some ways, I think it's very multi-sensory. Oh, I love autumn too. That would have to be my favorite yeah. as well. So um, I haven't asked this one in a while. What was one of your favorite childhood toys? So it was not Barbie. <laughs> not Barbie. <laughs> no, let's see. You know, I didn't did not play with toys. I read. I, I really did. I read just a lot. Well, maybe a favorite read... childhood book then might be a better one for you. Yes, uh, so I I don't know. I think this is mostly popular in the States, but I do think it has some international reach. I was absolutely in love with the Little House series by Laura Ingalls Wilder. And I think that actually this, this does relate to sort of what I've written. You know, that book, that series of books is, is fiction, but it reads like nonfiction. I thought for the longest time that it was truly a biography. And now we know it wasn't. You know, it was in many ways it is it is fictionalized, though it's certainly based on her life. But, you know, her way of writing, her way of capturing a, a girl's life, a girl who's not particularly special, right? Or a family that's not particularly special. In fact, they're they're always on the brink of poverty, but but she was so special to me and to all of us because somehow the way that book is narrated, we are with her. We're with little Laura Ingalls. So I was absolutely in love with that book. And I think that is one reason why 
I started to be interested in history. Wonderful. And very lucky last question for you, Leah, just in terms of a piece of advice, a piece of good advice that you've been either given or that you've read that you might be willing to share with our listeners today. And this could be just in general, in just about life in general. Get your butt in the chair. That is, <laughs> yes. right, the best piece of writing advice, but really work advice, you know, uh, certainly for writing, for research, whatever. It's not genius. It's not brilliance. It, you know, None of that. It's just showing up every day, whether that's at your desk or whatever. I, I, I think that is so true. Oh, I needed to hear that today because I did a lot of procrastinating yesterday, Leah. So thank you. <laughs> I'm going to sit down <laughs> today and I'm not going to move till I get done what I need to do. And, and the one final thing is our takeaway. So I ask all my guests for a takeaway. Sometimes people give books to read, about websites to, to have a look at, something that might deepen their understanding of 16th century, women in power, anything that we've discussed. Yeah. So I actually just recently finally read Maggie O'Farrell's The Marriage Portrait. And I'm sure this is very familiar to a lot of your listeners. But I would say, you know, Maggie O'Farrell gets at something that is so important about the 16th century. And that is the, the role of young women in these sort of systems of inheritance and how um, they're seen as dispensable. And, and what a violent and vulnerable situation that that was for so many women, many of whom were murdered by their husbands. So, you know, I think she does it so well. It's beautifully written. I loved it. And so if you want a fictional treatment of some of the same themes I'm dealing with in nonfiction, definitely go read that book. What a fantastic takeaway. I actually listened to that one as well. And it was an incredible listen. If you're looking for, again, another great book to, to accompany you on your walks. And just as a side note, have you read Hamnet, Leah? Yes. Oh, yes. How brilliant is that <laughs> book? I just, I finished that just thinking, how did she do that? Yeah. Well, again, right. Like just sort of sitting with this woman's grief, right. And she invites us or draws us in and we're just we're just sitting with this woman's grief. And I think that people who didn't like that book didn't quite understand maybe that that's what I didn't know she you was trying like to do. That I mean, book. That's just, that's, it was probably my favorite <laughs> read of whatever year it came out. I can't remember what, a couple yeah. of years ago, I oh, think. Oh, it was, it was brilliant. It was great. Leah, yeah, this has great. been such a lovely conversation and so, so lovely to, to meet you and speak with you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it was such a pleasure to talk about all these things with you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Music